Today, I'd like to begin with three questions. They are, what do you believe? What is the message of the Bible? And what is God's goal for mankind? What do you believe? What is the message of the Bible? What is God's goal for mankind? Now, only you can answer the first question. But today, I'd like to answer the other two. Now, before I begin, I would like to state what the premise is of this sermon and what the sermon is based upon, that premise. And that premise is that everyone listening to this sermon believes that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, my purpose is not to prove the inspiration of the Scriptures— But this sermon is given with the belief that you believe that the Bible is the written word of God. And I say that because we will use the Bible to answer those two questions. So when we see the answers in the Bible, then I trust that we will believe that because it is the inspired word of God. Now a thought came to me the other day and That was, what if my teenage granddaughter, who does not attend church services, what if she asked me, Papa, what is the Bible all about? I hope someday she will ask me that, and we have a wonderful relationship, but she doesn't attend. What is the message of the Bible? The subject I will address in this sermon is, what is the singular foremost teaching of the Bible? And what is the driving message behind all of the scriptures? Now, this can be a most interesting question, and I believe its answer will shed light on everything that God is doing, and it will shed light on how we should conduct ourselves. If I condense the theme of the Bible into one subject, that subject would be Life and death. The Bible begins with the subject of life and death, and it ends with the subject of life and death. Now, I know that sounds simplistic, and if you will bear with me, I'll use a financial term, but that is the bottom line of the Bible. Now, an individual must respond to the choice that is placed before him or her. And that choice which is placed is the choice to choose life or to choose death. Now, life, that is eternal life, now that is an unparalleled gift that God gives to us. But it is also a choice that we have to make. When you talk about salvation, uh, salvation is quite simple to understand in my view. Salvation is meaning personal salvation, is making the choice of life over death. Now the definition of salvation is the deliverance from sin and the consequences of sin. Salvation, the deliverance from sin and the consequences of sin. Now, salvation is God's gift. It cannot be earned. But we do have to choose to accept that gift from God. 
Now, not accepting that gift of salvation results in death. And the Bible refers to this death as the second death. And that death extends into eternity. Now, obviously, there's more to the Bible than life and death, but that's the central point of the Scriptures. And I would say if we can keep that foremost in our minds, then all that we experience in our lives will fall into order. The choice of life, which is salvation, or the choice that leads to death. Obviously, you and I want to make the right choice. Probably a most basic way to understand the plan of God is to view it from the perspective of making a choice of life or death. Now, that choice is made clear on the very onset of the Garden of Eden, and it is also made clear in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, both Genesis and Revelation which are the two bookmarks, or bookends, I should say, of the Bible, they begin with and end with the tree of life. And we clearly see the blessings of choosing life and what happens if we make the choice that leads to death. Probably the most important decision that you and I are ever going to make is illustrated by the tree of life. That tree of life is introduced in Genesis and is brought to fruition in the book of Revelation. Now, let's look at Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll begin with verse 26. Genesis 1 and then verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, male and female, he created them. So to set the stage, it is most important to know that man was made in the image of God. And man was not like any other thing that was created. And mankind stood alone. Mankind stood without equal when he was created by God. It was only he who was made in the image of God. He was given rulership over the entire earth that was given to man's domain. No other entity of the creation week would have that be his position. Just man who was created in the image of God. Now I'd like to touch on just for a moment the potential that mankind has by being created in the image of God. We know that mankind has the opportunity to be a son of God, to be born in his family, and to live forever. But a hallmark of being created in the image of God is man was created with the ability to think, the ability to plan, the ability to reason, the ability to have a memory. 
and mankind having a memory, he would be able to base future decisions on what he had done. And he would have a memory to know that. Now, the Bible does reveal the innate ability that man has, that innate intellect which God has blessed him with. I want to draw your attention to two examples of that early on in the book of Genesis. And that is the potential of man since he was created in the image of God. Let's look in Genesis uh, chapter 11. Genesis 11, and this is after the earth had grown, mankind had reproduced himself, had come to the point of sin being so egregious, God chose to destroy man from the face of the earth through the flood we call Noah's flood, and now mankind comes from that and he is going to repopulate the earth. God wanted him to scatter, repopulate the earth, man wanted to stay together and to build a tower that would reach unto the heavens. Notice that in, the, in Genesis 11 and verse 6. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be held or withheld from them. They wanted to stay together. They wanted to build a tower that would reach up into the heavens. We can speculate as to the reason or the purpose of that. But the point I'd like to make is that when they decided to put their effort together, one language, sharing developments, sharing a common goal, as God said, now nothing would be withheld from them. So God confused their language or gave them different languages. Mankind could never communicate openly at that point. When you can't communicate, you don't trust one another, and they dispersed. The point I'd like to make is the statement that is revealed in Scripture. That statement is, now nothing will be withheld from them as to what they want to do. Such an intellect, such ability shared only by the human race. Now, let me give you a little bit of ancient history. This goes back about 80 years ago. Mankind had the ability to split the atom. How do you ever find out that there was an atom to split in the first place? A little over 50 years ago, mankind went safely to the moon and returned. And the computers, it is my understanding, I'm not a computer guy per se, computers that they had to use had less power and ability than what I have in my phone today. They made it to the moon and they came back. When man puts his mind together and works for a goal, unless he is limited by time, he can achieve it. Now notice in Genesis 6, the setting here is before the Noatian flood, and it's really an opposite example than the one we just read. This is Genesis chapter 6, and we read in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness, this is before the flood, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. And human beings, mankind, left to himself. We have evidence from Scripture, as it said, he had become so evil and so wicked that God chose to destroy him from the face of the earth. So in the beginning, about 1,650 years or so after Adam's creation, the culmination of human endeavor had come to the point that it was nothing but evil. And God said, I'm going to destroy him. And as he did that, he saved eight people, only one of whom he said was righteous. I'm not saying the others weren't, but Noah was cited as being righteous. Now, at the very beginning, God establishes the fact that it is he, God, who establishes the rules. And it is he, God, who gives directives. It is he, God, who has power over life and death. That resides in the being of God. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and let's read verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 16. And God said... God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We don't see any written law to this juncture of human history, but you see a clear directive from God. Breaking that directive of God would result in death. That's the power that God has. If you notice in Genesis 3 and then verse 22, man did, Adam and Eve both chose to eat of the knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree that leads to death. In Genesis 3 and verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Ever. To underscore the point, God has the power to enable someone to live forever. Let me give the Good News Bible's translation of verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Now these human beings have become like one of us and have knowledge of what is good and what is bad. They must not be allowed to take fruit from the tree that gives life, eat it, and live forever. Verse 22, excuse me, verse 24, So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Man chose to eat of the tree that ends in death. And now they would then choose for themselves what is good and what is evil. What they would determine would be what is good and what is evil. Brethren, it is God's gift to mankind to offer him eternal life. When you look at verse 24, God wanted to protect his prerogative to give the gift of life. He did not want man to be able to reach out and take life, eternal life. He reserved to himself the prerogative to give that as a gift of life to whom he chose. Now, if I could summarize the two trees that are presented to man, it is his choice. Which will he choose? This was from the very beginning, and it will always be going forward. Mankind, individual human beings, you and me, others like us, will have to choose. Which tree will we partake of? At this point, I'd like to skip all that lies from Genesis 4. Let's go up to the book of Revelation, which is the other bookend of the Bible. And let's notice this. Revelation chapter 20. We're coming to verse or chapter 21. But first to set, if I may say it this way, to set the stage for Revelation 21 and 22. Let's read the last verse of Revelation 20. And that is... Anyone who is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that's a declarative statement. Either you are written in the book of life or you are cast into the lake of fire. And there we have it once again. Life and death. Now verse, or chapter 22, excuse me, uh, chapter 21. Let's begin in verse 4. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. There comes a time when the final decision has been made, and there is no more death. If you skip down to verse 6, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. God will give freely of the fountain of life. And in the scripture, you'll see the tree of life, the fountain of life, the water of life that, that flows from uh, different terminology for the same thing, which is eternal life. But notice how it reads there. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now in this vein, brethren, that means he who thirsts, he who desires, or we may say he who has made the choice to reach for the tree of life. It is to him that God will give freely, if that is the choice that he makes. Now, verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. There it is, uh, being the son of God, and from that we know that would then live forever. Verse 8, however, these are those we've read of who are reaching for the tree of life, however, or 
as it says in the New King James, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And that second death, the lake of fire, as it gets more finite as to the ending of one's life, that is reserved for those who choose not to choose the tree of life. Now let me take a moment because I want to underscore the role of choice that an individual has. If you look in Revelation 22 and verse 11, verse Chapter 21, chapter 22 is talking about the New Jerusalem, the finality there as the New Jerusalem comes down on earth and God dwells among men, and you have those who are within that New Jerusalem. If you look at verse 11 of of chapter 22, it says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Let me read that with just an additional word. I don't mean to be adding to Scripture, but I think it may clarify the intent, and I don't believe it does violence to this Scripture. He who chooses to be unjust... Let him be unjust still. He who chooses to be filthy, let him be filthy still. He who chooses to be righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who chooses to be holy, let him be holy still. Notice in verse 12. Revelation twenty two twelve and behold I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now, when Christ gives his reward and God the Father, when they give the reward, is giving a reward to individuals based on the choice that they made, which results in the work that they did, which is summarized as their life's work. What did they do? What choice did they make? From that choice, how did they conduct their life? And God sees that, and there's a reward that he has. Verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But then here's the juxtaposition of those who did not choose life. Verse 15, But outside, our biblical terminology But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. There are those who do not choose to obey the commandments of God. They remain outside of the tree of life. Revelation 22 verse 17 in the spirit and the bride said, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whosoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. He who desires or he who chooses life, let him partake of 
the waters of life freely. That will be my gift. Now, may I say once again and reiterate, this is the central message of the Bible. God has given to each of us a choice that we need to make going forward. Can you and I keep in the four of our minds that understanding that there is a choice that you and I have to make? And I can't emphasize the magnitude of this message of life and death. Which will we choose? And in this context, it is an ongoing choice that we have to make. Ongoing, we make the choice. I choose life. Now, the rest of the Bible, uh, Genesis 4 through Revelation 20, pretty thick. The rest of the Bible, Genesis 4 through Revelation 20, deals with why and how God wants you to choose life. Why and how God wants you to choose life. Now, before we explore that, uh, in Genesis, one more time, if I may, Genesis 4, before we leave the two bookends, I'd like to make a point from here. Genesis 4, and let's begin in verse 3. And in the process of time, this is when man has been removed from the Garden of Eden and he begins to produce his own food, etc. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Verse 5, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, brethren, there, there in Scripture, early on, two things that are introduced. God is to be worshipped, and God sets the standard of that worship. Also, an offering is given to God. And an offering is man's way to acknowledge who is supreme in his life. Uh, who is the supreme being to whom he would give of man's substance to honor this being who is supreme in his or her life. Now, Cain's offering was not accepted, but Abel's was. There's no detail given here in this account, but it's obvious there's a right way to worship God and there's a wrong way to worship God, even though the detail is not given. Cain and his offering were not acceptable to God. Abel and his offering were, was acceptable to God. Sin is involved in wrong worship of God. God told Cain in verse 7, sin lies at the door. But 
God always offers, which he did here immediately in verse 7, he offers the avenue of change. He offers the avenue of being forgiven. And he gives that to Cain. Now, when you look at the scriptures, and Genesis 1 through Genesis 6, that's over 1,600 years of human history. So what you read there, what is mentioned, is important. And these two things are pointed out. God is to be worshipped. There's a right way and a wrong way to worship Him. And a part of our acknowledging the sovereignty of God in our lives is to give Him an offering. And the offering to be acceptable to God must fall within the parameter of what God shows and tells how He wants to be worshipped. And if we worship Him in a wrong way, sin lies at the door. But you can do better. And you can rule over sin. Now there are two options available to the choice that we will make. And I'd like for you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 gives a most succinct and clear description of the choice, the two choices that lie before us. The setting is Israel, after having wandered through the wilderness, is now going to come into the land of Canaan or into the promised land. And God, as, as I envision as a fatherly figure, is going to give instruction to his children, his offspring, who are now coming into a new life. Notice what he says, Deuteronomy 30 And then we'll look at verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But... If your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that you and your descendants may live. Brethren, once again, the setting is Israel embarking upon the promised land. But in reality, what is stated there is a choice that is placed before all mankind at some point in their life. The choice. What are they going to choose? Now, I'd like to transition from that. And I'd like to touch on a most important component of God's dealing with man. And that is, God is not ambivalent toward the decision that man will make. God does not not care about the decision 
that you and I and eventually all of mankind will make. Categorically, without question, it is life that God wants us to choose. That's his desire. That's what he says. And you can go from Genesis 4 through the end of the book of Revelation, and you will see that brought out over and over again. That's the choice that he wants us to make. Between Genesis 4 and Genesis 20, that is enumerated in Scripture how much he wants us to make the right choice and how to do it. Good examples, bad examples. Reward for good behavior, discipline for bad behavior, etc., etc. Now let's look at some of the Scriptures that are placed between Genesis 4 and Revelation 21. It is the sheer volume of written material in the Word of God that will underscore God's purpose for man and how it is His desire that you and I choose life. The full volume of Scripture that points to that and clearly shows that. Now personally, as I began to look at that in preparation for this message, I found that to be most encouraging to me. And if it is encouraging to you, then I have met the goal of the sermon that we leave here encouraged. Now we're going to walk the path from the tree in Genesis to the tree in Revelation. And let's see how God wants us to choose life. Now, quite frankly, I don't have the time to cite all of the scriptures, but let me in short order just read a few of those to you, but I believe it makes the point. But there are multitude of scriptures that buttress the point that I would like to make. First is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those who believe on him, those who make the choice to choose the role of Jesus Christ in his or her life. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what he wants to do. He is not indifferent. He wants us to choose that. Now, quite frankly, in understanding the role of God in your life and in my life, <clears throat> that's a major point to understand and to deal with. God wants us to make the correct choice. He's not a fence setter. He's not indifferent. He is proactive. And we know that God is proactive. Uh, because when we see that God's love for mankind and the role that Christ would be as our Savior and the Redeemer from the penalty of our sins, that was established from the very beginning. Now, let's notice. When man sinned, Jesus Christ chose to die for him because of man's sin. Now, in that statement, I'm not saying when he made that choice. But when man sinned, then the choice was made, and Christ went forward. He was going to have to give up his life. 
Notice in Revelation 13 and verse 8. What it is referring to here in Revelation 13 is those who follow the beast. The prophetic beast in Revelation. So let me read that to you. Revelation 13 verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If your name is in that generation, at that time setting, when the beast power is upon the earth, if your name is not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation, then you're going to worship that at beast. Now, First Peter, if you would turn with me to First Peter chapter 18. The point I want to underscore in what we what was cited there in Revelation was slain from the foundation of the world. First Peter 1 and then verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Brethren, because of God's love for man, man being his highest creation made in his image. Jesus Christ's life and death, his death specifically, was determined from the foundation of the world. Now, was the timing of the foundation of the world Genesis 1-1, the original creation, or was it from Genesis 1-2, the recreation week when mankind was created? I don't believe the Bible defines that specifically in the scriptures that we turn to. However, let me state this. At a minimum, it was determined once mankind chose to take of the fruit of the knowledge, three of knowledge of good and evil, and incur the death penalty. At a minimum from them, and may very well go back to Genesis 1-1. That's the love that God has had for man. That's the role of God being proactive. That's the role of God not being indifferent to the decision that we make. He made available to us the opportunity to accept the gift of eternal life because of the role of Jesus Christ's death. And that being determined from the very beginning. Now, because of God's love for man, his death was determined. Now, in light of Adam's disobedience, and what was he disobedient to? He was disobedient to God's clear directive and the warning that went with that directive. Do not eat of the tree. Now, God would choose, when he gave that directive, mankind disobeyed it and incurred the death penalty. Mankind, excuse me, God would choose to enumerate and set forth his law for mankind. 
His initial contact with man, as far as what is revealed, is a directive. Don't eat of that tree if you do. Now, when mankind made that choice, now God is going to extend to him the fullness of the law. Because there's more than the directive, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is the fullness of the law. And the law would set the standard for man's conduct. Now, later in the Bible, clear, clearly stated, the Bible will define what sin is. What is sin? What is the penalty of sin? And that will be defined. But here, it is introduced. And as always in the course of Scripture, a warning is given to man of the consequence of sin. And there is invariably a stark demarcation between choosing to obey God and choosing to not obey God. And what is the consequence of both? Now, from law, once that is established, and there's evidence that Abraham understood law, statutes, and judgments, etc., it was codified in Exodus 20 with the written word of God, but law was existent, in existence. Because of law, or from law, then God establishes the role of grace. And grace is enacted when God determines that he will extend mercy to someone. And mercy comes into play when mankind repents and seeks forgiveness. So when mankind repents and seeks forgiveness, then God extends to him mercy. I will forgive you. And that's when grace comes in. That's the unmerited pardon of the forgiveness of our sins and the penalty that is incurred. Now, have you ever looked at those four things, law, grace, mercy, forgiveness, as four tremendous blessings that God has given to enable us to choose the correct choice, to choose life? To view those four as gifts from God that would help us enable us to choose the right choice. Now, because of time, I'll just briefly touch on those four. Four gifts from God to enable us to choose life. Let me touch on law first, if I may. To understand the choice that is set before man, we must visit the role of law and the parameters of sin. Now, there are many succinct definitions of law and the purpose of law. I want to focus on just one point, one purpose of law. The purpose of law is to define sin. The purpose of law is to tell us what sin is. Now, before we turn to Romans 3, please feel free to head that way if you would. We have to be reminded of Romans 6, verse 33, because that makes a factual statement of the penalty of sin and the gift of eternal life. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is just as clear as it could be. The penalty for breaking God's law is death. 
but God's gift to us is life. Now, Romans 3.20. Again, I want to underscore the point. A definition of law is to define what sin is. Romans 3 and then verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, the context of that is Paul is underscoring the role of accepting the life and death of Jesus Christ and coming under grace. And he is showing as it builds to that as to law, law does not give eternal life. The purpose of law is to tell us what is sin. Now, if you'll permit me, from my viewpoint, what an unusual way to describe what the purpose of law is. That being to tell us what sin is. Now, since God wants us to choose life, he has given us his laws so that we would know what sin is, and therefore we would not inadvertently or on purpose choose to sin. Because sin leads to death. Now let, let me just give an example from one of the laws. Let's look at the law, the law against adultery. If you go into the New Testament, Matthew 19, Christ was being challenged on uh, divorce and when divorce came into play and, and what that situation was. And if I may just paraphrase, uh, Christ is saying from the beginning it was not so, divorce. God, excuse me, Moses permitted the writing of the bill of divorce, but that's not the way it started. That was not God's intent. Because God created male and female, and he wanted man to cling to his wife. That you leave the harmony of the family structure, and you set out, and now you build another family structure. Man and woman, husband and wife. And you cling to her. That was his desire. Now, in the context of the law against adultery, God knew man, and that was his intent for man, to have that marriage union. And God knew that if man stepped out of that union and committed adultery, we know the definition of adultery, that would hurt that union, that would hurt that man, that would hurt that woman, that husband and wife, if he or she stepped out and committed adultery. God knew, I don't want him to do that. I say that's sin. If man steps out of the marriage bond and commits adultery, that is sin. So, I will write a law that says, thou shall not commit adultery. And since it's a law of God and the wages of sin is death is, if you break that law, you incur the death penalty. But why was the law given? So that we would not commit that sin. The law tells us what the sin is. God's intention, don't do that. I will make a law that tells you, don't do that. Now, when God established that law, he outlined for us what is acceptable behavior. 
what's acceptable behavior in worship of God, what is acceptable behavior in our treatment of our fellow man. Now, I'd like to focus for a moment or two on how the law of God is a blessing and how it is his gift to us. And quite frankly, it is to our benefit that we view the law of God as a gift and a benefit to us that God gives us. And that gift of the law, that benefit of the law is there so that will channel us if we understand it correctly and work within its framework that we would desire to reach for the tree of life and not commit sin. Now, sin brings eternal death. The Bible shows that unrepented sin brings eternal death. God calls this the second death and from which there is no access to the tree of life. The Ten Commandments serve the purpose of protecting man and establishing a basis for man's happiness. Now, God does offer help. God does offer benefits to assist man to choose life. Let me just look at two very quickly. One would be the gift of the Sabbath. Now, Mark 2, verse 27 says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So God gives us the Sabbath which was made for man's benefit. And God who created man, God knew that within him that man for his benefit should not work day after day after day after day. That on the seventh day, as defined by God and explained which day that is, man should stop from his work. Man should rest physically, and man should, as the other scriptures develop that point, he should look to God and be refreshed by his relationship with God. So God, knowing how man is because he created man, that he would need to, Every seventh day, but on the seventh day defined by God, he would need to stop from his work. He would need to rest. Other scripture shows he should assemble together in the role of the church, etc. But that would be the whole Bible, and we don't have time to get into all of it. But the point is, that Sabbath was his gift. It was for man's benefit to refocus, to rest, continue to drive toward the tree of life. That's where he wants us to go. The same thing could be said about the feasts of God. Each feast of God is a celebration. You and I understand that. We work through that. We go through that throughout the year. In Deuteronomy 14, it talks about our saving of our festival tithe, and we shall rejoice before the Lord. Within the core of man, there is built within him a desire to worship something and a desire to celebrate. If you look across all races, all societies, all clans, all nations, you will see among mankind a desire to worship something and a desire to celebrate. Now, what God does, since he was the one who created man, he knew that man, to understand his plan of salvation, 
that mankind would need certain events for his benefit that point to his plan of salvation and an explanation of that plan. And man would need to be taught intellectually because he has that superior mind. But also within man, there is the, uh, if this is a word, tactilely to touch, that there is a, a teaching way among man is the where he lays his hands upon things. And he learned from that such as when he takes the bread and he takes the wine. Or when he assembles at the Feast of Tabernacles and he's able to rejoice. And God says to be able to rejoice and whatsoever your heart desires because of the setting and what that feast points to. Or if it's the feast where we need to fast, physically touching things. It is intellect and there is the role of living through it and participating in that. That is built within man, God takes care of that to teach him intellectually and allow him year by year to repeat that plan. We learn intellectually with God's Spirit, and then we do the things to work us through it. That is necessary for mankind. And God, God determined, okay, for, for my highest being and this individual with whom I'm working, I want him to choose life. So he and she are going to need to celebrate. They need to know who to worship. I'll tell them how to worship and what it means. And we'll do this year after year after year because man can be deceived. Man can forget. Man can become weary and well-doing. Out of my love, I give to him my law that helps him in this way. Now, the subject of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. When we understand the plan that God has, his plan of salvation, with his goal that we reach for the tree of life, he grants to us grace, he grants to us his mercy, and he grants to us the avenue of forgiveness. Without those gifts, we would never be able to partake of the tree of life. If we did not come under grace, if God had not shown us his mercy, and if we had not asked for his forgiveness. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but just, excuse me, fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God is able to justify us, to call us righteous. There's no way you and I and our behavior and our pulling towards sin that we do not always rule over. There's no way we would be righteous in the sight of God. There just isn't. We're human beings. We're flawed. We don't do what it takes to be righteous all the time. We can try and we should. I do not want to diminish that role of seeking to do God's will. We've already read about that in Revelation. Choices that are made. But it is God who extends to us grace so that the penalty is paid if we claim that payment, that redemption from the penalty of breaking God's law. Now, 
What a gift that is from God. To be able to forgive man. If God didn't make that available, we would not be forgiven of our sins. Without being forgiven of our sins, we would face the second death. Now, God introduces the process of forgiveness. And that was brought uh, into the fore back in Genesis, uh, Genesis 4, verse 7. If you do well, if you don't, sin lies at the door, but rule over sin. You should rule over sin. If you do well, if you change, you can change. You can be forgiven. If you don't, it's sin. We know the penalty of sin. In my mind, one of the sterling examples of the role of forgiveness, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, is the example of David and Bathsheba. Uh, If we have any young people who are not familiar with that account, I suggest that you look it up. Don't Google it now. Google it during the hot dog special tonight. Social, excuse me. But if you're not conversant on it, you do need to read it. Let me summarize what happened by the illustration that Nathan gave to David. Nathan is there at behest of God to approach David on what he had done. He gives an example. He said, David, there were two men. One was poor. He didn't have anything. He had one little baby ewe lamb, a little female lamb. And he loved that lamb just like he loved his children. And he took that lamb, and that lamb would be upon his breast. That lamb sat with him when he ate. He drank this little lamb from his cup. He loved that one little lamb that he had. He did not have herds. He did not have flocks. He had one. And he loved that lamb as one of his children. The other man was a rich man. And he had flocks and herds, cattle and goats and lambs, just had a ton of those. I'm paraphrasing. There came a traveler who wanted a lamb. And this rich man who had all of those flocks and herds, he goes and takes the one little lamb from that poor man who only had one. When David hears that, he rises up in his anger, and he says, again, if I I may paraphrase, that man shall be put to death for what he did. And Nathan looks at him and says, it is you. It is you. When you turn to Psalm 51, it goes into the detail of David being struck in the heart when he realized the egregious sin that he had committed. And he repents before God, and it is a bitter repentance. And you know the story of when the baby came to to birth and all that went with that. Here's my point. If God could forgive David, and Psalm 51 shows that, therefore, he is able to teach again. 
be forgiven where grace is applied to him. God extends that mercy in light of and because of the repentance of David. Do we not see how much God wants us to make the right choice? That that is a gift and a benefit from God to assist man to make that choice. If we're not forgiven of our sins, then we wallow in pity and grief and we're hopeless. Now the gift of the second death, let me touch on that if I may. I will say that the second death is a gift from God. Now, if I were a Baptist preacher and you were the Baptist congregation, you'd be storming here with pitchforks and <laughs> to get me off the stage. I said, that's nonsense. Second death is not a gift of God. Of course it is. When we understand what God does with that second death, When we understand the timing, the method, and the finality of the second death, it becomes easy to see what a blessing that it is. Now, for a lack of time, what God does is, as the Bible is is clear, in His mercy, that individual who chooses not to accept and take, take of the tree of life and accept God's forgiveness, his life is snuffed out. And his memory is no more. That individual has made that choice, him or herself, and it is that choice that has been made. In Revelation chapter 20, I'd like to draw the sermon to conclusion. In Revelation chapter 20, it is important to understand the timing of when comes under judgment Bible's clear on that. Everyone is not judged during their three score and ten, that some are resurrected, Revelation 20, verse 5, to be able to live again. And at that time, their judgment, their life at that point is judged. Revelation 20, verse 5 said, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So there is the, t- the timing of one's judgment is critical in understanding the love that God has for mankind. We're not all judged at the same time. Some are judged during their three score and ten. Judgment has now come upon the house of God. And others are judged after they are resurrected from the dead. The standard of judgment is the same. The timing will vary. In Revelation 20, look at verse 11. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades were delivered up delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Brethren, the Bible talks about life and death, and it is a choice. 
from cover to cover. Begins with that, it ends with that, and those scriptures in between shows how God is pulling for us to make the right choice. And how we can do it, there are good examples set, there are bad examples that are set, there's encouragement that is set, etc. On and on, page after page after page, but it drives toward one goal. Choose life. Choose life. That's what God wants. Brethren, rivet your eyes to the tree of life. That's your lodestar. That's your guiding point. Every day, renew your commitment to reach for the tree of life. The title of this sermon is Choose Life. Always remember, do not fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And it is God, our Heavenly Father, who wants you and He wants me to choose life.